Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you can... 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel chapter 11. And we're going to get right to work this morning because we've got a lot of ground to cover. So we're just going to dive right in. And I'm going to begin by asking you a very simple question. Here's the question for this morning. Does God truly hate our sin? I mean truly hate it. Is our sin an ugly offense to the living God? And I'm not talking about abstract here. Sometimes when we talk about sin, we can tune it out and get very abstract or we can compare ourselves to the person around us. But what I want you to do in this moment, right now, in this very moment, when you think about your life and you think about your sin, does God hate your sin this morning? What does God think about your sin? Does He hate it? Proverbs 6, 16-19. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Here we have the very Word of God telling us there are seven sins that God hates. God hates arrogance. God hates lying. God hates um, hearts that are going to devise evil. God hates feet that are swift to rush into evil. God hates the innocent murder of someone who has, uh, who's innocent, the shedding of innocent blood. God hates these things. Seven things that God hates. They're an abomination to Him. And as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11 we see King David break almost every seven of these sins that God hates. We come to the lowest point in King David's life where he does what God hates. Now, Up to this point in our study of David, he's been a godly man. He's been a model of righteousness. He's upheld God's word. He's a man after God's own heart. He's concerned about justice and righteousness and holiness. David is God's man. But that will all change in one hot evening when he looks down and sees a bathing beauty and lust fills his heart. So let's read 2 Samuel chapter 11 together. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon. When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. 
And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servant of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live... And as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Okay, so let's just stop here. What's going on? Obviously, David commits adultery with Bathsheba. And she comes to him and says, I'm pregnant. So what does David decide to do? Let's make it look like Uriah got his wife pregnant. And so he calls Uriah back and says, hey, go home and enjoy your wife. And Uriah says, I can't do that. I can't do that. All my buddies are out in the field uh, serving the Lord in war. And David, you're here in the Ark of the Covenant. I can't go home and do that. And what is David thinking? You're not going according to my plan. This is not working. We've got a nine-month window here, and we've got to make it work. And so David says, let's go with plan B. If I can't get Uriah to go into his wife, let me go to plan B. It's always good to get somebody drunk. So that's what David does. Let's go on in the story and see what he does. Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem the day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. As a drunk man, he's more noble than David. He doesn't even go into his wife's house as a drunk man. And so David's like, okay, plan B has not worked. So if you can't get a guy drunk to go into his wife, let's just murder him. I won't pull the trigger, but what I'll do is I'll order his murder. Let's just have Joab send him to the front of the army. So let's keep reading. David's panic-stricken here. In the morning, verse 14, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Irony. What is, what is Uriah carrying? He's carrying his death warrant. He doesn't know what's in the letter, but he's carrying the letter that's, that's, that's basically his death warrant. In the letter, he wrote, verse 15, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Okay, so Uriah died. Let's move down to verse 22 for the sake of time. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. 
the messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours no one, now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We see many sins in this passage of Scripture, but verse 27 tells it all. What does it say there? What's the summary? The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, it's interesting that the writer calls it the thing because it's a bunch of things that David does. But the way the Hebrew text is written there, he wraps it up in this one big thing David had done. And literally when it says there, it displeased the Lord, literally in the Hebrew, it was evil in the eyes of the Lord. David did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, what sins did David actually commit? Well, we look at the two big obvious ones, right? Adultery and murder. Those are easy to pinpoint. But what I want to show you there is that there are some other sins that bubble under the surface that David actually committed in this episode along with adultery and murder. First of all, he lusted after Bathsheba and he broke the commandment of coveting a neighbor's wife. Now there's no indication that Bathsheba was trying to seduce him. She was probably innocently taking a bath in a courtyard next to her house, but where David's vantage point was on the roof, flat roofs those days, he could look down and he could see her. And here's the issue. She's the daughter of one of David's best fighters. She's the granddaughter of David's best counselor, and she's the wife of one of David's inner circle. So it makes it more stinging. It's lust, pure and simple. But then number two, he actually stole Uriah's wife. He was a thief. He broke the commandment that thou shalt not steal. He steals another man's wife. It's not his wife. He steals Bathsheba. Thirdly, David actually commits adultery with Bathsheba, the physical act of adultery. Fourth, he lied about it. He bore false witness. He tried to cover it up by sending Uriah home. Fifth, the other sin that David did, he got Uriah drunk. And number six, although he didn't pull the trigger per se, he ordered Uriah's death. And so in a sense, David is a murderer. So in just a few days... David goes from being a man after God's own heart to a lustful, lying, thieving, coveting, murderous adulterer. Now, before you get angry at David and you get aghast at what he does and you you begin to point the finger, how, David, how could you do that? Point the finger right back at yourself. Anytime you say, I could never do dot, 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 you are fooling yourself. Don't ever think you're one lustful thought away from doing some major sin. Every single one of us in this room have hearts 
that are prone to wander, as the song says. Come now, fountain of blessing. Uh, my heart is prone to wander, Lord. I feel it, Lord. I want to leave the Lord I love. Don't be harsh and detrimental on David here and think, how, how could David do this? Because in the depths of our hearts, every single one of us here could go that way if left to ourselves. Don't ever say, oh, I could never, dot, dot, dot. The minute you say, I could never, dot, 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 is the moment that you are fooling yourself. And so at the end of chapter 11, David gets away with murder. And he does the noble thing by taking Bathsheba in and making it look like, well, here's this poor woman. She's lost her husband. I'll do the noble thing. I'll bring her into my family. I'll be her husband, and, 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 and I'll just cover it up. No harm, no foul. Nobody's ever going to know, right? Who's the one person that knows? God. And let me say it again. God does hate our sin. Now, the text does not give details about how the characters felt. We don't know how Uriah felt. We don't know how David felt. We don't know how Bathsheba felt. But I can just imagine, this is an imagination here, that David is having some sleepless nights, dealing with the guilt, dealing with the conflict in his soul, knowing what he's done, and he's gotten away with it. And he's probably looking over his shoulder, wondering, is it ever going to catch up with me? Is it ever going to catch up with me? Am I going to get away with it? And so what does God do? God sends Nathan, the prophet, to confront David. Now, Nathan can't just walk into the king's throne and say, Hey, David, king, you're a lying, thieving, murderous womanizer. Because if he does that, what's going to happen to Nathan? He's going to get killed. So what God does to to, to Nathan says, Nathan, what I want you to do is I want you to go in and tell this this seemingly innocent little story about two guys and and their lambs. So that's what Nathan does. So let's move into chapter 12. And let's hear the parable. This is a parable that Nathan tells to the king. Verse, chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, Parable, story, here we go. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Can you picture it here? It's like a pet. This little, cute little lamb. It eats at the table. It, you know, he tucks it in at night. He, he carries this little baby lamb around with him. It's his, it's his pride and joy. It's his only lamb. And the, and the other rich guy has tons of, of lambs and flocks. Verse 4. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So what's going on? The rich man says, I've got tons of of flocks here, but I don't want to kill one of them to serve you dinner. Let me go steal the guy's little poor little ewe lamb, and we'll take that and we'll serve that dinner. That's the story. And how do you think David's going to respond? Verse 5. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Now what I want to do in taking these two stories together is to make it very applicable to us this morning. And what I want to do is I want to give seven applications or seven teachings or seven implications or seven observations that you can draw from these two chapters that teach us today here about the situation. So here's the first thing. First of all, God truly does hate your sin. We've got to establish that fact from the very beginning. We can't downplay sin. We can't justify sin. We've got to look at sin the way God looks at sin. And God doesn't wink at sin. God doesn't brush sin under the carpet. God hates sin. He hates it. Listen to Psalm 5, 4 through 6. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. That's pretty strong language. How does God feel about sin? He hates it. He abhors it. He cannot even dwell in the presence of it. Psalm chapter 11, verses 4 through 5. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. The Lord hates sin. And then Habakkuk 1.13, speaking of God, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. God hates your sin. He hates it. He abominates it. He loathes it. He despises your sin and my sin. Number two, sin often happens during times of boredom and a lack of accountability from others. What happens in the opening verses of chapter 11? What does it say? Go back to chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle... David stayed at Jerusalem. David is all alone. 
He's not surrounded by counselors. He's not surrounded by godly influences. He has let all of his support system go. He's by himself on that roof without any accountability. And what happens? He's restless. He's bored. There's no accountability. And you guys tell me if this is true in your lives. Let's see if experience backs this up. The times that you've gotten into major sin in your life, the times that you've fallen into sin, have they not been times when you were either bored, restless, or had no accountability? Bored, restless, and no accountability. So what should you do as a Christian? You should surround yourself with accountability. Surround yourself with Christian friends. Surround yourself with with people that are going to hold you accountable. And don't put yourself in situations where you're going to be tempted. Don't do that. When you deal with boredom, when you're bored, get up and do something productive. Don't sit there and let your mind fester on things that you could be doing that are sinful. Listen to Proverbs 11, 14. Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. When you surround yourself with high accountability, when you surround yourself with Christian influence, when you surround yourself with people that are going to be good counselors in your life, there's safety. There's safety. And then David doesn't do that. He sends everybody else out to war. He's by himself. No accountability. He's bored. He's restless. He's out there by himself on the roof. No support system whatsoever. Number three. Temptation in and of itself is not sinful, but the second look or thought that moves to act upon the temptation is sinful. Listen to what James says in James 1, 13-15. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, gives birth to death. Now, temptation in and of itself is not evil. We're always going to be tempted. That's not the issue. It's how you give in to the temptation that leads to the sin. Okay, so when David's up there looking at Bathsheba and he sees her and that sinful, lustful thought gets into his head, he's got a choice to make. Do I keep looking? Do I, do I turn away immediately or do I keep looking? And so what he does is he keeps looking. And what James here says is that he talks about childbirth, sin. Did you, did you notice the wording he says there? When sin has conceived, it gives birth to death. So here's the issue. Sometimes when temptation comes and you act upon it, it, be, it, it it's conceived. Okay, and what happens? Do you give birth automatically? No, there's like a nine-month gestation period of pregnancy. And that's what happens a lot of times in our sinning, is that we tend to nurse, we tend to nurse our lusts. Listen to what Romans 8.13 says. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you'll live. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, kill sin. John Owen says you need to be killing sin or it will be killing you. Kill sin. David did not kill sin. What did he do? He looked 
And not only did he look, he made provisions for the flesh. Listen to what Romans 8, 13 and 14 says. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Don't make provision for the flesh. Don't make plans. Don't nurse that lust. Here's what David did. David looked down at the woman Bathsheba, and he should have looked away. But he looks and he lusts and then he begins to make provision. What does he do? He goes and sins for her. He actually makes the plan and says, hey, I want you to go to her house. I want you to talk about who she is. I want you to bring her back here. And then I'm going to make a plan to actually commit adultery with her. He made provision for the flesh. He couldn't leave well enough alone. It could have stopped right there at the first look. When he saw Bathsheba bathing down there, he could have said, okay, temptation, I see it. It's done. I've killed it. I've walked away. Let me not deal with it anymore. I've killed the sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. It could have stopped right there. But he makes provision for the flesh. And this is related, number four. The ungodly desires deep in our hearts often lead to outward sins of the body. There are sins of the heart that if they go unchecked, will oftentimes lead to sins of the body. What does Jesus say about this? Jesus addresses this in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 27 through 28. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Outward action, right? You shall not commit adultery. Outward action. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What came first for David? Adultery in his heart or adultery physically? Adultery in his heart. He had lust in his heart, and it led to physical adultery. Jesus says the same thing about anger and lust and murder. Listen to what he says in Matthew 5, 21 through 22. You've heard it said, it was to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hells of fire. Which came first, David's anger or his murder? Now the text does not tell us that David was quote-unquote angry with Uriah. But what is murder, where, where does murder start? Jesus says, you can actually murder someone in your heart by being angry with them. And I'm sure that David was panic-stricken, and when Uriah wasn't playing according to his plan, when he did, it didn't work, that he, that, that, you know, I, I'm getting him drunk and it's not working. When all these things started going wrong for David, I'm sure he started getting angry, which eventually led to, okay, I'm just going to murder the guy. I'm just going to kill the guy. You see, outward sins don't happen by accident. They happen when you nurse, when you massage, when you dwell on those inner lusts and don't kill them. They will lead to outward actions of sin. Number five, premeditated sin shows a blatant and flagrant hatred toward God's word. I said that, a blatant hatred toward God's word. David made a mockery of the Ten Commandments here. I want you to notice a few things about this text. Back in chapter 12, look at verses 9 and 10. What does Nathan tell David? In verses 9 and 10, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? 
Verse 10, it says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me. Despised. And then you go down there at verse 14. Nevertheless, because by his deed you've utterly scorned. You've scorned, you've despised the Lord, you've despised the word of the Lord. Those words together really mean that you hate God's word. You hate God. You blaspheme God. You reject God. You devalue God. You hate His Word. You devalue His Word. You think His Word doesn't mean anything. Now, you may not actually think that you're hating God, and you may not think that you're hating His Word, but when you go and premeditatively sin against His Word, you're basically saying to God, and you're shaking your fist at God, saying, I really hate your Word. I blaspheme your Word. I reject your Word. And you may not even know that you're doing this. And why do you know that you're not doing this? Because you're so entrenched in the sin that you're blinded that you can't see. I'm, not, I'm sure David didn't just sit there and say, David did not consciously say, I am hating God's word when he was doing it because he was wrapped up in the sin. But in the actual sinning, he was showing that he hated God's word. Instead of hating or despising or rejecting God's word, what should we as Christians do to fight temptation? What should we be doing instead? Listen to what Psalm 119.11 says. How can a young man keep his way pure? Young men, would you underline this in your Bibles? How can a young man keep his way pure? Okay, what's the answer? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How do we keep our way pure? We hide God's word in our heart. We meditate upon God's word. We love God's word. We value God's word. We take in God's word. We let God's word be the influencer, the authority in our lives. That's how we keep our way pure. Now, what should have David done? after he saw Bathsheba. This is my speculation. This is Sean's thoughts. But here's what I think David should have done. When he saw Bathsheba, he should have said, I'm going to kill this sin, and I'm going to go back and sit on my throne. Now, why would David go sit back on his throne? David should have gone back to his throne. Why would David go back to his throne? Because next to his throne was the Bible, and he was supposed to read it every day. How do I know that? If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, God says, Israel, when you have a king, here's how the king is to operate. Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20. What was David supposed to do as king? Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left hand, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. David should have gone back, got that scroll, and sat down and said, I better read God's word. I better get into God's word. I'm the king. I don't want my heart to be taken into lust. Let me go back to my throne, find the Bible, and read it. Are you hiding God's word in your heart? Are you reading the Bible? Now, sixth, unconfessed sin blinds us to reality and may make us irrational and willing to justify our actions at all costs. Did David wake up that day and think, I'm going to be an adulterer and I'm going to be a murderer? But what happens when he gets those words back from Bathsheba? I'm pregnant. 
he begins to become irrational and he begins to justify his actions. And then when Nathan's telling this parable, David's clueless, right? I mean, all the way up to the punchline, David doesn't even know that, that Nathan's talking about him. And David's filled with anger, and he says, man, this rich guy deserves to die. This rich guy's terrible. I mean, this rich guy's a thief. The guy that stole the lamb from this other guy, he deserves to die. He deserves to repay that four times. I can't believe this guy. And then what has happened? Nathan sticks his bony finger in David's chest and says, listen, David, you're the guy in this story. You're blind to it. You don't see it. You're justifying your actions. You're acting irrationally. You are blind. You see, sin blinds us. That we don't see that we're the man. We don't see that we're entrenched in sin. We, we act irrationally. We justify our behavior. And all the time, we're blinded. And that's what unconfessed sin does. It blinds us. Pastor Andrew read this earlier today, but Psalm 32, 3-5, David says, When I kept silent, when I didn't acknowledge this, when I tried to hide it, when I tried to justify it, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now here's the seventh, and we need to understand this one very carefully. God absolutely forgives our sins through Christ, but we may have to live with devastating consequences. Look at verse 13, chapter 12. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He confesses his sin. Now, you may be a little mad here and think, that's all David did? I don't see any writhing on the floor. I don't see any squirming. I don't see him having to, like, pay all this restitution. He just simply confesses, and that's it, and God forgives him? Sometimes, Christians, here's a problem. We like to see other people squirm in their sin, and we like to put the hammer down upon them and be very judgmental and say they've got to pay for the sin they've done. And we can become very cold and calculated. And we can look at David here and say, all he said was, I've sinned against the Lord. But do you see, David doesn't backpedal. David does not find a loophole. David doesn't somehow downplay his sin. He's very honest. It may be short, we have Psalm 51 that we're going to look at next week, which is the full confession. But right here, he simply says, I've sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. I confess it. I'm not hiding it. And what, is, and what does Nathan say to him? There in the second half of verse 13, Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord's put away your sin. The Lord's forgiven it. The Lord's taken away your sin. David, the Lord has forgiven you. You can experience the forgiveness of the Lord. And that's glorious, right? That's wonderful. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a wonderful promise from the Scripture that God promises to absolutely forgive all of your sins, but you may have to live with the consequences of those sins your entire life. Look at verse 10. Nathan says to David, Therefore the sword 
shall never depart from your house because you've despised me, have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, Absalom, his son. The sword will never depart from David's house. From this point forward, life is not going to be the same for David. He's going to have family disunity. His family's going to fall apart. His family's going to unravel. There's going to be rebellion. There's going to be treachery. And as a matter of fact, one of the consequences is that his baby dies. Now, up to this point, David has been innocent. David's been suffering because of of Saul's pressure upon him. David's been suffering at the hands of the Philistines. But at the end of the day, David could lay his head on the pillow and say, I may be suffering, but I know that I'm right. I know that I'm innocent. I know that I have not sinned. But he can't do that from this point forward. He's going to be suffering the consequences of his sin. And every night when he puts his head on his pillow, he's going to say, thank you, Jesus, that you've forgiven my sins. I've received that full forgiveness. But every day he's going to have to live with the consequences of those sins. I want you to see something about the conclusion of this story. David should have died. It was a capital offense to commit both adultery and murder. He should have died for both of those sins. Leviticus 20 verse 10 says this, If a man commits adultery with his wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Technically Bathsheba should have died. But who's the one that dies? Uriah and the baby. David deserved to die. God is very clear. If you commit adultery, you die. If you commit murder, you die. And then we have to ask the question, well, then how come God doesn't kill David? How come David doesn't die? And the answer we have is this. God does it because he has the right to show mercy on who he wants to show mercy. Listen to what Exodus 34, 6-7 says. This is when God passed before Moses. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. God had every right to show justice to David, but he chooses not to. He shows mercy simply because God has the right to show mercy, but also in doing so, he guarantees that the Savior will come through the line of David. If he killed David, no Jesus. So what's our only hope when we sin? What's your only hope when you sin? Well, let me give you a good passage of Scripture in 1 John 2, 1 through 2. A very practical passage of Scripture John says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, so here's John. Don't sin. If John were writing to David, he'd get in his face and say, David, don't sin. But if anyone does sin, what does the Scripture say? If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. What's the answer? If you sin, and you will sin, what's your only answer? Do you have an advocate? 
You have a go-between. You have an intermediary. You have a substitute. Who's the substitute's name? His name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. What has he done? He has made propitiation. Now you may think, well, what's propitiation? It's just a big word to say this. You deserve to die on the cross. You deserve for all of God's righteous anger to come barreling down upon you. And instead of God having that come down upon you, it came down upon Jesus in your place. He took that punishment. He took that pain. He took that justice in his body, diverting it from you so that you would never have to experience it and he stood in your place and he died as your advocate so that when you do sin you can look to Jesus and say thank you Jesus that you died in my place I don't have to die because you died for me that's good news because if you've sinned this morning that's your only hope is Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ and think about this God hates our sin so much that he had to punish Jesus. He had to inflict that anger upon Jesus. All of God's righteous anger and hatred towards sin came laser-like focus upon Jesus in our place so that you and I would never have to die for our sins. So I'm going to be like John this morning. Don't sin. Don't sin. Please don't sin. Kill sin. Avoid sin. Don't get in situations where, you, where you're going to sin. Uh, surround yourself with accountability so you don't sin. Please don't sin. Walk out of here and please don't sin. But if you do, and I know you are because I will too, as John says, I know you're going to sin. Don't sin, but if you're going to sin, and I know you're going to sin, look to Jesus who's your advocate. Look to the one who died in your place. Go straight to Jesus, your advocate. Go to straight to Jesus, confess your sins. And here's what you find. When you confess your sins, what do you find? He is faithful and just to forgive you all of your sin. That's your only hope this morning. So as we come to the Lord's table, as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, there may be many in this room who have sin in their lives. All of us have sin in our lives. And the Lord's Supper in the gospel do not tell us, hey, clean yourselves up. Try harder next time. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Just grit your teeth and try to do better. Now, the gospel says we're all weak and helpless. We are frail. Our only hope is King Jesus. And so as we come and celebrate the Lord's table this morning, let's rest Let's find assurance, let's find joy in the fact that we have a Savior who actually died in our place and forgives our sins. And so when we take the body and the blood of Christ this morning, we are picturing verbal, or we are picturing symbolically what Christ has done for us in that sacrifice. And we can receive the forgiveness of sins this morning afresh because of Jesus. Let me ask you to bow your heads as we go before our advocates in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are all sinners. And Lord, there may be some in this room that have committed heinous sins like David. And Lord, all of us have committed heinous sins in our hearts. Father, all of us have had lusts in our hearts. And Lord, none of us here is... is, All of us here, Lord, are are just one lustful thought away of doing something crazy or stupid. And it's only by your grace that that you've sustained us. 
And so, Lord, as we come to your table this morning, we want to come with joy to know that you forgive sin. You're faithful to forgive sin. You died in our place. And and David's only hope was you, Jesus. Our only hope is you. No matter what the sin is in this room, Lord Jesus, you can cover it. You can pay for it. If we confess and we repent and we believe in you, Jesus, may we receive the Lord's Supper with joy this morning knowing that our sins are forgiven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.